Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us via telephone James Underwood. Mr. Underwood is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Constitutional Law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. He is author of Deadly Censorship, Murder, Honor, and Freedom of the Press. And he's also author of a four-volume history of South Carolina's constitutions, as well as several works on federal legal practice. He was also a guest speaker here at the State Library back in 2014. So, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here. Always good to get back with my friends at the State Library. Well, we certainly appreciate your time. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your book, Deadly Censorship. We had you back here in 2014 uh, right. to do a book talk, and uh, but just kind of refresh our memories. Okay. Well, uh, about me personally, I taught uh, at the University of South Carolina School of Law from 1966 to 2003, and of course have kept my affiliation and have written books for the USC Press that uh, you're aware of, I'm quite sure. Uh, the last one that you mentioned, Deadly Censorship, uh, when we're talking about uh, um, murder, honor, and freedom of the press, is kind of a prevailing theme of mine now, and that is to look at historical incidents, uh, typically in the late 19th and early 20th century, that involve uh, attempts by uh, political forces uh, to silence editors, to intimidate them or eliminate them in the case of deadly censorship. Uh, and uh, what occurred in that case is that you had the uh, editor of the state newspaper, N.G. Gonzalez, uh, in the uh, gubernatorial election in 1902, had been very critical of uh, Lieutenant Governor Jim Tillman, Ben Tillman's nephew, uh, who was running for governor. Uh, and uh, Tillman thought that the uh, criticism was so vociferous and vicious uh, that it was what caused him to come in fourth in the uh, uh, first primary uh, and not get elected uh, a governor. Uh, so he swore to get even. Uh, and in those days, you couldn't get even by bringing a lawsuit or something of that sort. You had to do something physical in order to preserve your honor. Uh, if you didn't, the thinking was, among certain leadership classes, uh, that you were not a real man. You weren't worth respecting. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, after some abortive attempts to uh, uh, get uh, uh, Gonzalez to engage in a duel with him beyond the state jurisdiction, uh, he uh, tried uh, street corner uh, tactics. And uh, in uh, January 15 of, of uh, 1903, uh, when he was lieutenant governor, he adjourned the state senate, uh, walked outside, accompanied by a couple of state senators who had no idea what was about to take place. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he saw coming in the other direction, as I suppose he expected, N.G. Gonzalez, uh, who was going uh, uh, home for what we would call lunch nowadays. I think he was calling it dinner or supper. Right. Uh, and as uh, they, they came abreast or nearly abreast at the corner, uh, Main and Gervais, which was uh, then a streetcar transfer station, uh, Tillman said to Gonzalez in a cheerful manner, good morning, Mr. Gonzalez, and he pulled out a gun and shot him. Wow. 
uh, at that point, uh, he began backing across the street to the other side, weaving in and out of uh, streetcars and so forth. Uh, a constable came up to him and says, I've got to arrest you, Governor. Uh, incidentally, at that point, uh, Tillman's lawyer kept running up, came running up, uh, uh, instantly represented him in, in the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had that take place. You had uh, uh, eventually a murder trial. Uh, Gonzalez died a few days later. Mm. Uh, and the uh, transfer of venue uh, from uh, Richland County over to Lexington County, ah. uh, the uh, forces of uh, Tillman, his uh, defense attorneys, felt he wouldn't get a fair trial in Richland because they thought uh, Gonzalez was uh, more popular than Tillman was in Richland, mm-hmm. even though uh, Tillman had gotten a good many votes in R- Richland County. And I won't tell you what uh, the outcome of the trial is. You have to <laughs> You have to get the book. That's right. right. And in fact, we'll put a link to it on the uh, the webpage for the podcast episode. And just to refresh people's memory, that's deadly censorship, murder, honor, and freedom of the press. And how did you originally get interested in um, doing a book on this? Well, it's it's a mixture of things. I've always been oriented toward the First Amendment issues. Uh, under the federal constitution, that would include freedom of religion as well as freedom of speech and freedom of press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got interested in uh, the local history when I was doing uh, the uh, four-volume series I did on the state constitution and came, kept coming across freedom of the press issues. Uh, and uh, this story uh, linking uh, N.G. Gonzalez uh, and Jim Tillman uh, kept coming up. Uh, and I thought it was about time somebody did a, uh, a book on that subject. And uh, what the title means basically is that there's no more definitive form of censorship, censorship than shooting the editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the question was, would that intimidate other editors into silence? Would it be a chilling effect on the vigor of freedom of the press? Uh, and uh, as it turned out, it, it wasn't. But uh, it still was a scary incident. Certainly. Uh, and it's kind of induced me to continue looking into these historical incidents in uh, late 19th, early 20th century, in which people in the political arena tried to silence their critics in the press. And uh, what I'm working on now is uh, uh, one that's uh, tentatively titled uh, An Editor Faces Jail, uh, the Great Charleston criminal libel trial uh, of uh, 1875, and it uh, deals with uh, the famous Charleston editor, uh, uh, Francis Warrington uh, Dawson, editor of the News and Courier, mm-hmm. uh, and he was criticizing uh, vociferously a local politician, a uh, sheriff, uh, Christopher Columbus uh, Bowen, uh, calling him uh, a corrupt official who uh, submitted fraudulent bills to the accounting for support of the jail that he was in charge of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, he had this screaming headline that said, uh, the murderer Bowen, uh, in which he was accusing uh, Sheriff Bowen of uh, hiring a, a sort of a rustic uh, country boy hitman uh, to kill their commanding officer wow. during the Civil War. Both of them were in the Confederate uh, Army. Mm-hmm. So that took place, and there were uh, some uh, charges brought, but it uh, died out for various reasons that are too complex to 
rehearse here. Sure. Uh, and uh, then you had it sort of uh, revived abortively in, in 1871. The, the killing was 1865. Uh, and uh, you had uh, uh, another attempt to revive it and, uh, uh, and so on. So this headline, The Murder of Bowen, was more than Bowen could take. So he decided to uh, instigate uh, a criminal libel case uh, against uh, editor uh, Dawson. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, he had a lot of pull with the grand jury, so he induced them to uh, indict Dawson and to begin with his partner, uh, Reardon, who uh, operated the News and Courier uh, together. Uh, so you had a big trial uh, in uh, Charleston uh, in uh, April uh, of uh, uh, of 1875, and uh, like the uh, Gonzalez trial, it was a very political event. You know, in the Gonzalez trial, uh, every lawyer in the case was some sort of a prominent politician. Mm -hmm. You know, you had uh, uh, Will Thurman prosecuting uh, Jim Tillman, and uh, uh, then you had uh, a congressman as one of the defense attorneys, and, and so on. We had a similar kind of situation in this uh uh, Dawson Bowen case with the uh, local prosecutor uh, aided by a, a man named Corbin, who was a U.S. attorney and been a prominent prosecutor of, of the Ku Klux Klan and defense attorneys, uh, uh, one of whom, uh, uh, James Conner, was a former Confederate general and uh, a, uh, another defense attorney who had been lieutenant governor, William D. Porter. So the whole thing was political from start to finish, and just like the Gonzalez case, and it, it might as well have been a convention of uh, of lawyers and politicians, and so it, it played out against a uh, dying ember, so to speak, of sure. uh, of Reconstruction, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the parties arraigned themselves on various sides of Reconstruction issues. So what I do in both cases is to hopefully illuminate the. Uh, uh, what problems Reconstruction uh, in uh, the uh, uh, 1875 case and uh, retrospectively in the 1903 case, uh, where you still had some of the uh, sides uh, opposing each other uh, and uh, the oncoming Jim Crow era and all of that kind of stuff. And so it, it was just a window uh, into the larger political scene. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, uh, trying to give a uh, vivid account of a, a true life uh, case. Sure. So, the, anyway, uh, I might mention that the criminal libel trial, there aren't many of those that are kind of disfavored, but uh, theoretically you can uh, convict uh, the defendant and uh, send him to jail. It's not just a, a damages action or anything of like that. Uh, of that nature and, and impose a fine. Uh, so uh, uh, Bowen, the sheriff, was in, in essence trying to uh, run uh, Dawson and the News and Courier out of business because mm -hmm. he got tired of their criticism too. So it's the, it's the same kind of setup of politicians uh, trying to uh, drive their critics out of business. Uh, and in one case, it's a murder case. In this case, it's uh, what I'm working on now. Uh, editor faces jail. It's a criminal libel case. I, mm -hmm. I won't tell you how that came out either. But, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, still a work in progress. Right. That's the, it's the 
it's an interesting project. I'm still knee deep in uh, working on it. So anyway, well, well, what else can I uh, help you with? Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about since this is Banned Books Week, which in 2019 is September 22nd through the 28th, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the process where libraries or schools uh, actually, you know, get requests from parents or or other people in the community to actually remove books from the collection and really just kind of wanted to get your take on that and you know since since this is one of your your areas maybe what's your opinion on this uh, yeah some of these uh, requests might be uh, meritorious but uh, others are just uh, stemming from ignorance uh, uh, one that comes to mind even though it was more dealing with the uh, uh, city council than a library board uh, comes from a, a, a dispute over a, a pornography case some years ago and it shows that whenever these uh, requests to ban a book or ban a uh, audio tape or a videotape or movie or whatever come in uh, you know talk to the people involved making the request make sure they know what they're talking about because a lot of times they haven't read the book or seen the uh, video or uh, or confusing it with something else. Mm-hmm. And this uh, example I have was uh, uh, there was a, a pornographic uh, a film, uh, oh no, some 25 years or so ago called uh, Debbie Does Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was uh, opposed by this little town in Texas. They, uh, they banned it. Uh, and uh, it was a notorious uh, film. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, another one came into town through, uh, I don't know whether it was a bookstore or, or a, uh, a video store, uh, and it was called uh, uh, Doing It Debbie's Way. So they got all up in arms again. Oh, my God, we're being invaded again by pornography. We've got to stop this. Uh, and they did at least at least for a while, mm-hmm. uh, and it turned out that the uh, uh, there was an entirely different Debbie involved, and the uh, the second one doing it Debbie's way. It was the old time movie star Debbie Reynolds, uh, who uh, uh, those old enough will remember was a star with Gene Kelly of Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Carrie Fisher's uh, a mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, what it was was a exercise tape uh, whereby Debbie Reynolds was was teaching ladies how to do exercise to the music uh, of old time big bands like Lynn Miller and Harry James and Tommy Dorsey and and so forth. There's nothing pornographic about it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, first thing I just make sure that uh, they know what they're talking about and <laughs> right. uh, have some familiarity with the item. Uh, second, I would look to see whether or not it involves uh, viewpoint discrimination. In other words, you've got an issue uh, and you're uh, being asked to ban one side of that issue, uh, and that's generally uh, uh, improper. Uh, you need to be able to, to uh, discuss both sides of an issue or more than two sides of an issue. And mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, uh, essay, uh, uh, An Apology for Printers. Uh, and he makes that point again and again about a democracy, an elective democracy. You need to be able to read about and discuss 
uh, both sides of an issue. Uh, and just because one side offends you doesn't mean that it should be a ban. You know, we are in a democracy. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen uh, that's going to offend you, but it uh, perhaps would receive the light of day and be discussed like anything else. You have similar views from James Madison and uh, others involved in uh, the early Founders' Day, uh, Founders' Era uh, of constitutional development and things of that uh, of that sort. So now when you have something that's not a uh, viewpoint discrimination, but it's more of what they call a, a time, place, manner a regulation, in other words, you're not banning it, but you're saying we'll have it at this place, not the other place, or it'll be at this time, not another time, and mm-hmm. restrict it to a certain audience. Uh, that depends on how that works out. And, uh, you know, if you're just trying to uh, keep uh, young children from something that's not suitable for them at that at that point, uh, but you're keeping it open in the general library, uh, you know, that might uh, be okay. But you have to know whether or not uh, this time, place, banner regulation is really just as a disguised a total banning uh, that makes it so difficult for people to read or see something that they can't really get access to it. So a lot of it depends on the facts involved in a in a particular case, and uh, so I would keep that that kind of thing in mind and just uh, look at it uh, very thoroughly and have a lot of person-to-person negotiation before somebody takes drastic action. Because, you know, sometimes you can come to uh, an agreement that's not extreme. Anyway, that's the way I would uh, uh, would tend to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would be kind of your advice maybe for libraries or, or teachers or schools that, you know, run up on, on this kind of issue when taking into consideration, you know, someone who wants to remove a book from a, a library collection? Uh, well, uh, you know, you've got to listen to them uh, because there's so much pressure that can be brought to bear uh, on uh, uh, school teachers and principals and school board members. Uh, but at the same time, I would, you know, try to gauge the degree of support of that as just one person uh, seeking protection for his or child. That's the kind of protection that they could uh, put in place themselves, and you, you you want to think about it some more. Uh, but, uh, you know, you see a lot of these things in the, in the paper that it's, it's kind of a stampede, and I would that tend to advise people to uh, wait and see, to think about it, to talk to people, and see if there are others with another point of view. That, uh, you know, the lattice isn't always the uh, predominant point of view. Right, exactly. Yeah, and and every you know community is different, and so every community that's served by a library or every school, you know, they're all different, and each one has to take into account its own set of circumstances. That's right. You know, different degrees of sophistication and different degrees of what they'll run into on the outside, uh, making uh, uh, regulation uh, for a library or a school. Uh, sort of uh, quixotic because they're going to be uh, uh, coming across it anyway. Uh, but at least they might, uh, in a school setting, uh, get a, a useful background for that uh, literature uh, work that uh, explains 
where it came from, what its historical context uh, is, and uh, doesn't just uh, have a focus on a few rough passages. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would I would be sure that you have, uh, if you've introduced things like that are, that are controversial, that you include, uh, if you cover it anyway, a lot of detailed background background information about what the purpose is, where it came from, and uh, you know, I, I know of examples of uh, some of the most uh, uh, liberal, non-racist people in the history of literature are being labeled as being racist when what they were doing was writing something was anti-racist, but it required use of racist terms uh, temporarily. So you know, you need to put that in in context, and maybe maybe an age uh, limitation uh, for a while, but. Uh, you know, try to get it across anyway. But, you know, it depends on the work you're talking about, what its reputation uh, is. Uh, is it a classic, or is it something that was uh, uh, published in a, a sort of uh, mean-spirited kind of way? It's, it's you, you know, you can't really subjectively consider all those in every case, but uh, uh, it's something worth, worth thinking about mm-hmm. uh, from time to time. Sure. Uh, well, since this is Library Voices, I wanted to give you a chance and uh, tell folks what your experience working with libraries is, and this could be a personal or professional uh, anecdote. Uh, yeah, I, I have several. I'm, um, for the most part, just uh, completely grateful to uh, uh, librarians of all sorts, but particularly uh, uh, reference librarians that there are items that I have in my books now, uh, books that may be 10, 20, 30 years old that I'd still be looking for <laughs> if it weren't for the uh, uh, help I, uh, I got from uh, librarians. And uh, one example that comes out of the uh, uh, second volume of my state constitution series, uh, uh, the one that dealing with uh, uh, lo- journey toward local self-government, uh, and one part of it was dealing with uh, some government reform in uh, Charleston that took place uh, not long after the Second World War, and uh, we're trying to find uh, a report that was uh, made by the consultant that they uh, uh, brought in to analyze the local government and what they recommend what they needed to do to change it. Uh, and uh, so I, I wanted to get the uh, original report uh, of the consultant and uh, one of our law school librarians managed to uh, track him down and is still alive, you know, I think he's 80, 80 something uh, and, uh, and he says, oh yes, you need to talk to this bright young lady in the Charleston Library who was probably 70 something at that at that time and uh-huh. uh, uh, so we were able to get uh, uh, with the uh, Charleston Library's help and the law school library's help and I'm pretty sure that, that the State Library helped out in that, too, because they have a lot of these old reports uh, in their collection, sort of the, the modern-day archives, if we can use that kind of right. <laughs> that kind of term. And uh, so that was uh, uh, helpful. Uh, another incident, uh, I had a lot of help from libraries. Uh, I finally uh, had a bright idea of my own, though, and that was... Uh, in dealing with British material, uh, British statutes, 
uh, in a section that uh, uh, was dealing with uh, uh, punishment of uh, Catholics in Northern Ireland, uh, well, throughout Ireland, let's put it that way, at that, uh, at that time, I could not get certain types of education and couldn't marry Protestants and their limitations of their inheritance and so forth. Uh, so I wanted to look at the original statutes and uh, English uh, statutes are listed according to the name of the monarch, uh, the year of their reign, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would look into the cited monarch and the year of their reign and the right statute number and page number, and what I would find would be something entirely different. In one case, it had nothing to do with the uh, regulation of the Catholic religion, it had to do with building canals. <laughs> uh, so uh, this went on several times, and uh, uh, so I, you know, I called around uh, different libraries, and uh, finally, you know, like some old movie uh, character who gets a, a light bulb on his head, Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, oh, there must have been two parliaments. And uh, I, I had spent time in, as a Fulbright professor uh, in uh, uh, Northern Ireland, Queen's University, and I got to know some uh, uh, people over there. So I, I called my friend uh, uh, Desmond Greer, who's a faculty member at uh, Queen's Belfast, uh, and I asked him were there, uh, you know, there were two two parliaments at that time, uh, but we couldn't find them anywhere here. I, I called, you know, like Harvard and Columbia and University of Chicago and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he was able to find it and uh, send it to me. It just happened at that time to be uh, the president of the Irish Historical Society. That was a stroke of luck. And But anyway, I got all kinds of help from uh, uh, the uh, librarians at that time. It was very helpful. Uh, and... Uh, uh, but I had to finally have my uh, bright idea that I should have had <laughs> a, lot, a lot earlier. So uh, uh, so I got the material, but uh, it took a while on that. But anyway, I've never had uh, you know anybody just stonewall me uh, uh, who was for the regular library. I've had some occasions where uh, a, a particular group had its own archives and they were trying to protect their reputation, and mm-hmm. I got a little bit of trouble on that. I won't go into <laughs> I go into that, but uh, I finally got finally got the material even uh, even then. But I've generally had very good luck with with uh, uh, libraries and librarians, and uh, uh, the the last book uh, and the current one. I've been doing a lot of research and uh, uh, university archives. I've, I've been to and sent assistance to uh, uh, the Duke Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, uh, same at uh, Chapel Hill, uh, the um, South Carolina Historical Society and the Charleston Library Society and uh, Emory University, uh, a Pitt Theological Library that had a lot of uh, materials on the early life of Bishop England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, they, that kind of, uh, of thing is uh, hard to find, but, you know, they do a pretty good job of of keeping that, that kind of material. And uh, oftentimes you'll find that it's uh, uh, been damaged a lot in, uh, in the years, through the years, and uh, so you don't always find what you're, uh, what you're looking for, but... Uh, 
uh, you know, they do a, a, a good job of keeping up with these things and indexing them and and so forth. And I'm still doing that that kind of thing on this uh, current book, and perhaps even more so than I did with uh, Deadly Censorship, but did a lot of it, a lot of it then too. And uh, so um, I'm grateful to uh, uh, librarians and uh, archivists and uh, uh, people of that that sort who. I generally know more about something than I do and are kind enough to uh, show me the way. Well, that's that's good to hear that you've got uh, so many uh, libraries that you can reach and contact to try to find all kinds of information right. for, yeah. for working on your books. <laughs> well, it's it's been uh, gratifying, I'll, uh, I'll tell you. And, uh, you know, you don't really run into much of... Uh, uh, the uh, bad reputation uh, state university employees get of being kind of bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they, you know, generally pretty uh, quick to be of help, and I uh, don't uh, impose a lot of uh, procedural obstacles and hoops you have to leap through and so on. Well, I, I definitely think, you know, reference librarians are... are they they love the mystery. They love trying to find that little it, needle exactly. in the haystack. <laughs> well, that's what I lo love about this. That uh, you know, I love to read mystery books as well as, well as uh, historical and uh, literary fiction material. And uh, it's just like a detective story. And every once in a while, you'll find a, a research assistant who has the same kind of uh, love for the obscure and uh, uh, tracing a a path through all kinds of highways and byways and and so on that's that's a pleasure too definitely yeah well um i think we'll all be looking forward to uh your next publication editor faces jail and do you have any idea when that's going to be coming out no i, I sure don't i uh, uh closing in on finishing a first draft i've been working on this uh, several years but i've still got some uh, historical material I'd like to find before I finalize the first draft, and uh, so it, it'll be probably be, be several years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say that uh, I'm getting uh, up there in years, so I hope hope I make it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we all right. certainly hope you do. Right. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to uh, give a little shout out to Mackenzie Collier over at the University of South Carolina Press for helping me get in touch with you to be on our podcast. So uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, and I'm thankful to Mackenzie as well, and I uh, uh, hope to be seeing more of you later on. You were certainly a great help, and uh, uh, the lecture I gave in uh, uh, 2014 on deadly censorship, and I've got one other thing to thank you for that you might not expect, and that is that you took some uh, really good pictures of my wife and I at that lecture, and uh, one of them's one of our favorites, and we, we've got it uh, hanging up in our uh, living room now. Oh, so, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, we've got three of them that you took. There, there probably were more, but uh, we saved those three, and uh, that one is of the two of us, my wife and I, and then you've got... Uh, one of me lecturing and one of me signing the books. And uh -huh. uh, anyway, they're, they're very much treasured, and I know you keep that kind of thing up. And well, well, I appreciate hearing that. That well, makes me you. feel great. Right. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. And thank you to our listeners. 
You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. Until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.